Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is his historian and uh, New York Times bestseller, H.W. Brands. He's out with a new book, Dreams of El Dorado, A History of the American West. In this book, he explores the contradictions of the West and explodes its long-standing myths. The West has been celebrated, he says, as the proving ground of American individualism. In reality, the West depended on collective action and federal largesse more than any other region. One example. H.W. Brands holds the Jack S. Blanton Senior Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin. He was finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Biography for the First American and a traitor to his class. He lives in Austin, uh, Texas. H.W. Brands, welcome back to the program. Delighted to be with you, Tom. Uh, so, I want, as I always do, I want to start with your Twitter feed. You are um, you're engaged in ongoing in the haiku history, American Saga, 17 syllables at a time. American history. Um, so let me ask you once again about that. What uh, what got you into that? <laughs> it's kind of a long story, but I had been telling my students at the University of Texas, where I teach, that there are various ways of writing history. You can write it long, you can write it short. I always said that you could write the history of the world in 800 words or 8 million words. The only difference was the matter of detail. And I said that there are various formats, and I said you could even write it in the form of haikus. And one of my students said, well, Professor Brands, have you ever written history in haiku? And I said, well, actually, no, I hadn't. It's been kind of a throwaway line. But I had been thinking about ways of approaching history in the new age of social media. And this conversation took place not long after Twitter burst onto the scene at South by Southwest here in Austin. And I had been thinking about, could I use that primarily to get to my students who are more comfortable with social media than they are with long forms of history books and the like. So I kind of put the two together and thought a haiku, that would fit into the 140 characters of Twitter. So I started out, and nine years later, I'm still doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Has that affected your quote-unquote regular writing at all? I think it probably has, but perhaps in ways I'm not fully aware of. (laughs) Because when you write short, you start thinking uh, that you have to make every word count. And one of the things, and another thing, a bit of advice I tell my students is, you know, when you're writing a term paper, when you're writing a dissertation, you want to take care on it, but don't obsess over it. It's not like you're writing poetry, for heaven's sakes. But, you know, when you're writing haiku, you are writing poetry, (laughs) and you only have a few words, so you can kind of obsess over the word. I just want to take a couple of uh, the uh, latest tweets before we get into the book. Um, so one of your tweets, this is from October 27th, Brand's second law of history, it's more complicated than you think. No matter how complicated you think it is, uh, for simple, see myth, you say. So it's more complicated than you think. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, first of all, I have to say that I interspersed the haiku with some things like this. What I somewhat immodestly and facetiously call Brand's laws of history, and I call them Brand's laws of history, because I want my students to know that nobody else has to agree with these laws of history. These aren't like the second law of thermodynamics or something like that. So these are just my take on history. And one of the things that I've observed in my study of history, my observation of human affairs, is that the more you dig into something, the more complicated it gets. Now, this is frustrating at times to those people who want history to serve up easy morals, to take easy lessons that you can draw from history and apply to the present. But in fact, that's not the way history works, because that's not the way humanity works. People do things for multiple reasons. And to say that 
somebody did this for that reason. Well, that's probably right, but it's only partly right. Now, for me, the complications are what makes history interesting. For some other people, it makes it kind of frustrating, but I'll take it for what it is. <laughs> uh, you do Sunday specials as well. Um, and this one st- stood out to me. This is a uh, quote. Democracy is a system which, in which heads are counted but not weighed. <laughs> yeah, so this is, um, those Sunday specials are ones where I started out with quotations applying to history, particularly. And some of them were like, Henry Ford, history is bunk. And you know, various other ones, uh, those who cannot learn from their history are condemned repeated and so on. But then I occasionally would run across these other quotes that seemed to be appropriate, if not necessarily to a study of the past, sometimes maybe even to the present. So this business that democracy is where we count the heads, we don't weigh them. So yes, indeed, we count the votes, but you know, everybody's vote counts equally. And this actually is a question that I pose to my students all the time. So what does democracy have going for it? Uh, we Americans embrace democracy, and the best that my students can come up with is what Winston Churchill said about democracy, and that is just the worst form of government ever, except for everything else that's been tried. Mm. And so there are definite drawbacks to democracy, but nobody's come up with a better system. Related to that, and I'll, I'll leave the haikus here, uh, the Twitter feed here. By the way, I'll plug it here, at H.W. Brads. Um, so here, here's one of your haikus. It is not perfect, but we can do no better, so let us all sign. It's Franklin at the close of the Constitutional Convention. Uh, echoes of, uh, of Churchill there. Yes, and I would say that that is a lesson that's worth applying to pretty much any moment in history and any moment of decision-making. Because when people pursue the perfect, they wind up with nothing at all. And especially in a democracy, you have to accept less than your ideal because the people that you are debating with have their own versions of the ideal, and nobody gets everything that they want. It's just built into the nature of living in a community. Uh, so let's jump into the book, The Dreams of El Dorado, A History of the American West. That's, that's subtitle, A History of the American West. Um, ambitious. Uh, what? Uh, why now? Why? Why did you want to do a history of the American West? Well, in some ways, this is a book that I've been preparing to write longer than anything else that I've ever written. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and my grandparents had a house in the Mount Hood National Forest, about forty-five miles outside of Portland, and I would spend summers there. And I would run around the mountains and the trails, and it happened that uh, my grandparents' house was sitting smack on the final western leg of the Barlow Trail, which was part of the the Oregon Trail. It was an alternate to going down the Columbia River. And so I was steeped in the legends and the lore of the Oregon Trail. When I was back in Portland, my father would take me and my three siblings on Sunday afternoon drives around, and we'd stop at historical markers, and we would often visit uh, a replica, a reconstruction of the old Hudson's Bay trading post at Fort Vancouver, which is in Vancouver, Washington, just across the river from Portland. And I would imagine that I was one of the fur trappers coming down the Columbia River. And in fact, at about that point, I came across a historical novel called Young Mac of Fort Vancouver by an author named Mary Jane Carr. And I imagined that I was Young Mac. And as in a lot of these historical novels, Young Mac is an orphan And so he's looking for a surrogate father, and he finds it in John McLaughlin, who was 
the factor, the head of the Hudson's Bay Company post at Fort Vancouver. So I could imagine being a a kid out in the West at that time. My grandparents indulged me and my siblings a little bit. They They bought this old buckboard wagon. And we would climb on the wagon, imagine that we were kids in a covered wagon coming west. So this goes way back into my childhood. But more recently, well, I've lived in Texas now for actually longer than I lived on the West Coast. And in Texas, you're introduced very quickly to the history and the mythology of Texas, including the Battle of the Alamo and the Cowboy and all the stuff that grows up around that. So I had made two attempts to write partial histories of the West. I wrote a book about the Texas Revolution, maybe this was 15 years ago, called Lone Star Nation. And I wrote a book about the California Gold Rush. I went to college in California, and so at that time I spent some uh, months traipsing around the gold country in the Sierra Nevada. And so I wrote about the California Gold Rush. And I was thinking maybe sometime I'd come back to write about the West. I was thinking perhaps of writing a book about the Great Migration to Oregon. But just about then, I was approached by an editor at Basic Books who said, we're thinking of doing a series of books on regional histories in the United States, and would you like to do a book on the history of the West? And I thought, well, boy, this is great, great opportunity. So I leaped at the chance, and that's where the book came from. Um, <clears throat> an important part, of course, of the West is the, the myth of the West, right? The the, the idea. It's, it's a great poll. It was a great poll then, a great poll now. Um, it occurred to me as I was looking at your touring schedule here, and you're going to be, by the way, you're going to be in Salt Lake City on uh, Friday, King's English Bookshop, put a plug in for that 7 o'clock, you can come mm-hmm. and interact you. with yeah. Professor Browns, uh, back home to uh, to Portland, uh, Powell's Books in the Seattle, mm-hmm. uh, California. Uh, you have um, you have a New York date as well in uh, in February. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering, you've lived in the West, taught in the West, but uh, you know, traveled around. Um, do people react to the, the, the idea of the West, the myth of the West, differently, depending where they are? They do. Because in the East, especially for people in the East who've never lived in the West, the West is this land of, it's still kind of a land of mythology. And there are notions of cowboys out in the West. And the West somehow retains that old feel of the 19th century which it does in a few places, but if you go to Los Angeles, Los Angeles looks like any other city, looks like Atlanta, so there's hardly any difference there. In the West itself, of course, there are people who are surrounded by this stuff, but interestingly, people in the West, with the important exception of Texas, tend not to dwell much on their history. And I think this is very characteristic of the way the West was settled. The West was always the region of America's future. The East was where history was. The East was Plymouth Rock and Jamestown. The West was where the country was going. So unusually, not uniquely, but unusually in the history of nations, there was a geographical movement component in the chronological movement of American history. So as the country aged, it also moved west. The center of gravity of the country moved to the west over the time. And the west was always this place where Easterners could go if things got really bad in the east. So if they lost their job, they lost their home, if a marriage went bad or something like that, they could recreate their lives in the west. Now, most people who had this dream, and this is where Dreams of El Dorado, the title, comes in. Most people who had this dream never really acted on it. 
They just thought, oh, we could one day. But making that step to go west, that's a big deal, and most people don't do it. But nonetheless, the West acted as a kind of psychological safety valve. So if things get really bad, we can go to the West. This is why. This is why at the end of the 19th century, when the director of the census announced that he could no longer find a frontier in the West, a frontier being defined by the demographers as the line that, that separated the settled regions from the unsettled region, that really caused a traumatic moment among many people in the United States, because from the very founding of the English colonies in North America, until that point, there always was this frontier. You could go out to the frontier, and it was as though the world was made anew. There was this Eden beyond the frontier. And that frontier receded into the West over time, but by the end of the 19th century, it had essentially vanished, which is one of the reasons that I end my history at the end of the 19th century. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, so why do you think Texas is the, is the um, exception? Uh, they, they have focused on their history. I don't know exactly why, except that Texas has this kind of magnetic attraction to people who come to Texas. And I'll say come here because this is where I'm living and lived here for a while. And I, I observe this as an outsider. I didn't grow up in Texas. And I've lived in Texas for 40 years, but I really consider myself more a person of the West Coast than in Texas. But I have come to appreciate the way Texans view themselves. In the first place, Texas is a really big state. It's big geographically. And these days, it's big in terms of population. And it has four major cities. And the result of this is that if a kid grows up in some small town in Texas and wants to find something new, that kid doesn't have to leave the state. He can just, if he's tired of Austin, he can move to Houston or Houston to Dallas or something like that. So, so Texas is big enough that the ambitions of young Texans can fairly well be satisfied by staying within the state. But there's also this sense, well, of course, every Texan who goes to seventh grade in the state and takes a seventh grade Texas history class is drilled with the fact that Texas is the only state in the Union to have been an internationally recognized republic, an independent country, before it became part of the United States. Now, one of the things that I tease out in my telling the story is that Texans weren't happy about being an independent country. That was because they couldn't get into the United States. They separated, they seceded from Mexico with the idea that they would slide immediately into the arms of the United States. But anti-slavery groups in the United States said, forget it, we're not going to have this big slave empire come in. And so Texas spent nearly a decade effectively out in the cold. So it wasn't Texans' idea to be in this independent republic, but that's the way it came about. So that's part of the story. The part of the story has to do with the Battle of the Alamo, which is a really odd thing. This emblematic moment in Texas history is, well, unlike the emblematic moments in the military histories of other countries, which usually are victories, you celebrate victories, in Texas, it's the horrendous defeat at the Alamo that is, I won't say celebrated, certainly commemorated. But there are, there are families in Texas that go back generation, generation, generation. When I lived on the West Coast, you know, nobody in Portland had been there for more than two or three generations. The history just wasn't much older than that. In Texas, they go back six, seven, eight, and of course, and if you include people who are descended from the 
the Mexican population, the indigenous populations, go back much farther than that. So there is something about Texans and their history. Um, a little bit has to do with the fact that Texans often consider themselves to be, well, different. They're outsiders. There's Just as there is a notion of American exceptionalism, there's a Texas exceptionalism to the American exceptionalism. Anyway, it's a fascinating and I would say complicated place. Mm. Uh, before we go to break, um, um, I want to talk about this this idea of myth, right? You're you're in some cases exploding myths, um, and there can be this this uh, factor of uh, myth versus fact. And I'm I'm not 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 using myth as you know true or untrue. I'm just the idea we have, but th- that idea can be very very powerful. It, it can move us. Oh no, there's no, um, no question about it. The way I look on myth is that it's an idealized version of fact. So in every enduring myth, there is a kernel of fact. And so, well, one of the myths, of you know, there's the myth of the, the dreams of great wealth in the West, the dreams of El Dorado. El Dorado were originally referred to as the Golden One, but then it meant the city of gold. And that's really what first drew the Spanish to the American Southwest. And it took Americans out to California, not just Americans, but people from all over the world came to California. And the dream was that they would acquire great wealth. Well, some of them did, and that's what kept others coming, but most didn't. Most had an adventure, but they found out that life in the West was pretty much the way life was elsewhere. Another myth is the myth of individualism that you referred to at the beginning. Westerners love to think of themselves as these rugged individualists, but the entire West, again, with Texas partially accepted, was a creature of the federal government before it was anything else. It was acquired by the money and by the blood of the rest of the country. And so the West didn't create itself. It was created by the country as a whole. Uh, I want to be, again, before we go to break, I keep promising, but we'll do it. uh, But (laughs) before we go to break, the conversation is very interesting. Um, you, You have several examples in the book about how history does have a powerful effect on us. One of those that I hadn't thought about before was connection between the California Gold Rush and Silicon Valley. And you, you write that uh, because of the history of the Gold Rush, because of, the, I guess, the culture that was inculcated there, um, the, the, at least that area took the moral stigma out of failure, and therefore the tech industry could come in there and, uh, and had a better chance, perhaps, of success through failure than they would have had in other places. Yeah, so I like to do a thought experiment. And I take you back, take your listeners back to the early 1970s, when Silicon Valley had not even been named yet. That part of the San Francisco Bay was usually called the South Bay or the Santa Clara Valley. And the, the modern technic, uh, technological industry, the high-tech industry, was, was just taking off, the electronic industry. And if you looked in the United States, there were two places where it might develop. One was in the San Francisco Bay area. And it relied on the previous existence of a couple of electronics firms. So Hewlett-Packard, for example, in San Francisco. And it relied on research universities, so Stanford and Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. But if you looked to the east, if you looked around the Boston area, you could see the same thing. So there are electronic firms that are already settled in Boston along Route 128. And there was Harvard and MIT. And it seemed like it would have been a coin flip as to which one would be the center of the modern tech boom. Now, I would argue that, in fact, it wasn't a toss-up. It was going to be California. And the reason for this was, around Boston, 
the, the vision of success, the American dream, still connected material success with the state of one's soul. It was a hangover from the old Puritan days that God smiled on those who were right with him. And if your business succeeded, then that was a mark that God, you were in touch with God. If your business failed, you were supposed to beat your breast and examine your soul and figure out what was wrong with you. In California, as a consequence of the gold rush, where people went out and they realized that there was a whole lot of simple dumb luck involved. You would stake your claim to one section of stream and somebody else would stake a claim to the section of stream right next to you and you would reach down and pick up a just a piece of rock and your neighbor would reach down and pick up a gold nugget. And you thought, I work just as hard as he did. There's no difference between him and me except luck. And that your recourse was not to give up and not to beat your breast or hang your head. It was to go get a new claim and try again. So in California, the concept that you can fail and fail honorably became normalized. And people expected to fail three, four, five times before they succeeded. But when they finally succeeded, the success would be so rich it would pay off all the previous losses. And that's exactly the mindset that gave rise to the venture capital business that grew up that became a prerequisite for the modern tech industry in Silicon Valley. Yeah, <clears throat> most of the time we don't think about why the, the culture evolved, right? That's As a historian, you must uh, this, this must be a great part of your job, pointing this out to students or readers. It is. There's nothing more fun than drawing connections between the past and the present. And I will say that the connections are most useful if you simply take the past on its own terms and let it tell you what it has to say, if you go from the present back to the past looking for lessons, you'll probably find lessons, but they probably won't be very reliable. The past is a little bit like the Bible, that you can look in the Bible and find anything you're looking for. The better way to do it is just to take the past on its own terms, accepting the complications I mentioned earlier and just see see what pops up. Well, we are talking with H.W. Brands. He's a New York Times bestselling author, a historian. He uh, teaches at the uh, University of Texas at Austin. He holds the Jack S. Blanton Senior Chair in History at University of Texas, Austin. And um, his latest book is Dreams of El Dorado, a, a History of the American West. We'll talk much more about this uh, following a break. Before we go to break, uh, mention again that H.W. Brands will be in Salt Lake City uh, on his book tour, he'll be at the King's English Bookshop on Friday, 7 p.m., uh, for a reading book signing, and uh, that's where you can interact with uh, Professor uh, Brands. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is uh, New York Times bestselling author and historian H.W. Brands. His latest book is Dreams of El Dorado, A History of the American West. He's going to be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Friday. That event starts at 7 o'clock. And uh, you can read his uh, Twitter feed, at H.W. Brands, where he is doing a haiku history, the American Saga. American history in 17 syllables at a time. Much else that's interesting there as well. Um, so, Professor Brands, uh, w- one more of these connections that I find so fascinating before we jump into uh, some other of the history uh, here. Um, you, you've written about the fact that uh, there's a reason why filmmakers set up shop in, in California. 
in in, in Hollywood. It, it, the industry started back east. It did, and it moved to the west in part so the people who were trying to break into the industry could avoid laws and regulations that restrained them from doing it in the east. But also, once they got to the west, they discovered that that desert air around Los Angeles and Hollywood was fantastic. The light was good. They could film outdoors 360 days a year. And it was the kind of place that people were quite happy to go. And once again, it's part of this Western theme of you go West to remake yourself. And there's nothing that says remaking yourself like becoming an actor and being somebody other than you really are. And a person who embodied this in the 20th century, of course, because this is a 20th century story, it's not part of my story in the 19th century, was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan grew up in a small town in Illinois, but he dreamed that his life could be different and better. He had a troubled childhood. He had an alcoholic father. But when he was growing up, he would go to the movies, and he would imagine, one day I could be up there on the screen. And so he found his way to Hollywood, and he became a Hollywood actor. And then after that, of course, governor of California and president of the United States. And uh, he subscribed to this, uh, you know, American exceptionalism, right? Oh, there's no question about it. And in fact, if there was a single theme of Reagan's philosophy is that America's brightest days are ahead. And he could say this even in the very poignant farewell letter he wrote to the American people after he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And even in the letter, he says, even as the darkness is closing in on me, I see that there's a bright future for America. And in American history, that bright future always lay toward the setting sun. It lay toward the West. And you think that comes from his reinventing himself as a Californian? I think a lot of that, definitely, because California had these open horizons. And for, so for a young man in the 1930s in Depression, Illinois, California was this place you could go, and you could become a different person than you were. Now, I was talking earlier about the appeal of Texas, and one of the appeals of Texas originally was that it was foreign territory, and it was originally part of New Spain and then part of independent Mexico. And the first Americans who went out there went there precisely because it was foreign territory. When they were wanted for various crimes, if they had bad debts, if they had bad marriages, as soon as they crossed the Sabine River from Louisiana into Texas, they were home free. The sheriffs couldn't follow them. And that was one of the really big attractions of going west. Even if you weren't really on the run from the law, you could go to the west. And in the early days, it was so far from anywhere else, and communications were rudimentary so people couldn't follow you, then you could disappear and remake yourself. One of the big figures of California history was a, a Swiss man named John Sutter, and he left Switzerland because his marriage was bad. He'd gotten himself deeply in debt, and he told his wife in Switzerland he was going to France or somewhere, and he would be back. Well, no, he never went back, and he went off to California, and California in the 1830s and 1840s was as far away from the east coast of the United States and from Europe as you could get and still be on the face of the planet Earth by means of how you get there, because you had to sail all the way around South America. And Sutter built a new name for himself. He created a backstory. He said he was a distinguished soldier in the Swiss Army and all this stuff, which he wasn't, but nobody could check up on it. But the irony there was it was, on, it was near Sutter's Fort in modern Sacramento that gold was discovered. And this became an international story. 
and it was covered in the American press. It was covered in the European press. And his wife back in Switzerland read that gold had been discovered on the property of this guy Sutter. And she says, oh, there he is. And so she, she sent her son to go all the way to California to find his daddy and explain that he needed to come back. And so Sutter, after having been in California for 10 or 15 years, was astonished to wake up one day and see his son standing on his doorstep. <laughs> what, what a, I think Sutter stayed in California, didn't he? He did. He didn't go back. He didn't go back. In that's, fact, his son uh, didn't go back either. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's another thing yeah. about California in particular, but other parts of the West. So people went West for usually for particular reasons, and in some cases, they intended just to be there momentarily. So the people who went to California to look for gold, almost none of them intended to stay in California. They did some calculation. They figured, I can make more money in the gold fields in California in one summer than I can make in a decade doing whatever I'm doing back in Missouri or Ohio or Pennsylvania. So I'll go out, I'll make my money and come back. And everybody went out, and a lot of them got to California and said, my gosh, this is a beautiful place. And they felt a freedom that they hadn't felt back home, and a lot of them stuck around. Uh, same thing was true with immigrants from other countries. So Chinese came to California to dig gold, and nearly all of them intended to go back home. There was a very strong sense of ties to one's ancestors and to the eldest in one's family, and it was really important to go back home. But a lot of them got to California, and they decided, okay, boy, this is there's a lot more opportunity here than there is back in China, and so they stayed. So that it had this magnetic attraction. People would come to the West for one reason, and then they'd stay for other reasons. You put in mind, of course, here in Utah, we, you know, um, we know uh, Mormon history. The, the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. This is an entire people who left the United States. Then the United States caught up to them a, a year later. Uh, well, so yes, yeah, so that was an irony of Western history. It happened to the Texans because the United States eventually came to Texas. It certainly happened to the Mormons. They went to Utah precisely because it was not part of the United States. When they went there, it was part of Mexico, and they were getting out of the United States, which they felt had treated them very badly during the previous 15 years or so. So they're going to shake the dust of American soil off of their shoes and go beyond the reaches of American law. And then there's this war between the United States and Mexico, and gold is discovered in California, and the United States <laughs> comes trooping right into Utah, and they find that the Mormons find themselves facing the very people that they had fled from. Uh, I want to uh, jump in and talk about a few people. You've talked about a few people. That's interesting to hear about uh, John Sutter. Um, you begin and uh, essentially end the book with uh, Teddy Roosevelt, um, our, our first quote-unquote Western president. Uh, he was definitely seen as a man of the West, right? I think he saw himself that way. Oh, no question. So Roosevelt was this silk-stocking New Yorker born and raised in New York City. And he went to Harvard and did all that East Coast stuff. But he was also an enthusiast of hunting. And in his mid-20s, he went on a hunting trip to then Dakota Territory, which modern North Dakota, because he had heard that there were buffalo there and he wanted to shoot a buffalo. And he shot a buffalo, and when he got got out there, he was just enchanted by the appearance of the West, by the, the people of the West, by the approach to living. And on the spot, he decided he wanted to become a ranch man. He wanted to buy a ranch. And so he wrote a check for $14,000 to some people he had just met because he thought that Westerners were all honest and their handshake was as good as any kind of contract. 
And he went back home and they bought him a, a cattle ranch. And he was a rancher for a while. Now, it turned out that ranching was harder than he thought. And a horrible blizzard in the winter of 1886-87 basically froze him out. And he also fell in love with a woman who lived in the East. And and he, or he moved back to the East permanently. But he kept his place in Dakota for a while. But for the rest of his life, he kept sort of in his mind and in his heart this sense of being a Westerner. And I think that this, more than anything else, was what made this child of privilege in New York acceptable, indeed very appealing, to the American people generally. Roosevelt, when he ran for election in his own right in 1904, got the largest popular vote in American history until then. And a lot of it had to do with people could see this man of the West as a man of the people, in a way they could somebody who otherwise had just lived in New York. What did, uh, what did Roosevelt see? What attracted him to this idea of, of the West? With Roosevelt, life was a challenge. You know, his life was always a challenge. It was a challenge to his strength. It was a challenge to his virility, in part because he had been a sickly child, in part because his father had not taken up arms in the Civil War. So Theodore Roosevelt was always looking for some way to test himself. And when he went west, first of all, could he kill a buffalo? And then could he kill grizzly bears? Could he kill the great game animals of the west? That was part of it. But he really wanted to measure himself with what he considered to be the quintessential American, the cowboys. And he was so admiring of the cowboys. He knew how to ride horses. He had played polo in the east, but, but not the way the cowboys did he had camped, but not the way the Cowboys did, being out on the open range, self-sufficient and all this stuff, and being able to, to rope cattle and brand cattle and, and protect the herd against uh, you know, all this bad weather and cattle rustlers and all this stuff. So the Cowboys somehow summarized everything Roosevelt wanted to be. And so when he got out to Dakota Territory, he basically got to play Cowboy. And the real cowboys out there, at first they laughed at it because here was this dude in the West whose idea of the kind of clothing you wear out on horseback and on the range was something you get from Brooks Brothers. But they did, they learned to admire his courage. He was a, physically a courageous guy. His determination, his willingness to, to match them, you know, stride for stride to learn what they could teach him. And eventually they realized that He's a pretty good guy. When they accepted Roosevelt that way, Roosevelt had this surge of accomplishment and self-confidence. He found in no other place with the one exception of when he was in the thick of the Battle of Santiago in the Spanish-American War. So with Roosevelt, the West was a place he could test himself. And when he felt he had passed the test, then he felt better about himself than he ever had. Let's take another break. When we come back, more with H.W. Brands. He's a historian and uh, New York Times bestselling author. The latest book is Dreams of El Dorado, A History of the American West. H.W. Brands is going to be in Salt Lake City on Friday. Uh, the event is at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. 7 p.m. is the start date. You can interact with H.W. Brands there. We'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is H.W. Brands. He is the uh, Jack S. Blatton Senior Chair in History at University of Texas at Austin. 
He's a New York Times bestselling author, finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Biography for the First American and traitor to his class. He lives in Austin, Texas. And uh, the latest book is Dreams of El Dorado, A History of the American West. And H.W. Brands will be in Salt Lake City at the King's English Bookshop on Friday, 7 p.m., the start time for, for that event. Uh, so H.W. Brands, um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, go back to the kind of the very beginning of the American West, the Louisiana Purchase. I was interested to read uh, some concerns that President Jefferson had, why he jumped on this opportunity to purchase all this land from Napoleon. So Jefferson was very aware that the United States in the early 19th century was an agrarian country, so 80% or so of the American people were farmers or lived on farms or connected to farms. And he also appreciated the fact, this had been known to people like Benjamin Franklin, that the American population was growing rapidly, was doubling about every generation. So if you are the president of a country where the population consists of farmers, and if that population is doubling, you better double the landed area of the United States in order to prevent the farms from getting smaller and smaller as they're handed down from generation to generation. So this was Jefferson's first idea. And in fact, with the Louisiana Purchase, and it extended a streak in which the American landed domain doubled about every generation. So at the end of the Revolutionary War in 1783, the British handed over to the United States the eastern half of the Mississippi Valley, which effectively doubled the size of the United States. That was 1783. In 1803, 20 years later, Jefferson purchases the Louisiana Purchase, which once again doubles the size of the United States. Then in the 1840s, the United States goes to war with Mexico and acquires the Southwest, including California, Nevada, and Arizona, and confirms its right to Texas, effectively doubling the size of the country again then. But then there's something really interesting that happens, and this is a part of the history of the West, but also a part of the history of the United States as a whole. The expansion pretty much stops at that point. We can leave aside the, the purchase of Alaska, which was kind of a flyer for the future. And, and it is a part of the West that I confess that I don't deal with because it's really, its history is quite different during this period. But the territorial expansion basically shrieks to a halt. And the reason for this is that it's just about this time that the United States is shifting from being an agrarian economy to an industrial economy. And so the economic future of the United States no longer depends on more land. It depends on more jobs. It depends on exports and modernization and stuff like that. And it, this has spillover effects for the West because the West can no longer expand the way it did before. But it's also a time when the nature of relations in the West are changing. One of the themes that I develop in my book is that the West, during the 19th century, the period that I deal with, the West was this region of pretty much consistent violence. And the violence was sometimes quite organized, as in the U.S. Army against various Indian tribes. Sometimes it was more haphazard, as in the violence of the California gold fields or in various other places of the West that lived literally outside the law. One of the characteristic features of the West during this period was that originally it was beyond American law. Even when it was when the Louisiana Purchase was acquired, for years there was no government in most of that region. It would take a while to establish territorial governments and eventually state governments. But the Old West, or the West of the 19th century, really passes into history by the end of the 19th century when almost the entire area now is under state governments. And so it has become settled in a way it wasn't during that earlier period. 
One of the uh, contradictions you point out in the book is love-hate relationship with the West and the, and the government, talking about the federal government. Um, and in, in the West, there's this idea of uh, individualism, of course. Um, and presently, in, in many areas of the West, um, a tension with the federal government. But you point out in the book that uh, this area uh, needed the federal government, m- maybe more than other areas, to, to get settled. Sure, to start with, you just mentioned the Louisiana Purchase. Well, this was an action purchased by the federal government of the United States that creates this arena for all, all these individuals to go out and act on. Now, one of the reasons the idea of individualism sort of caught on in the West is that the West was very much less crowded than the East. So if you lived on the Lower East Side of New York, you knew that there were lots of people around and you could see police on the beat and all that other stuff. You go to the West and you, you, if you wanted to, you didn't have to see people for days at a time. So you had this idea that you were out there on your own, and to some degree you were, but you wouldn't have been there in the first place without actions by the federal government. The West wouldn't have remained part of the American West, if not, for example, for federal underwriting of the Transcontinental Railroad. In the 1860s, at the time of the Civil War, there was strong sentiment in California to secede from the Union, the way the South had seceded from the Union. Not not to join the Confederacy, but if the South could secede, so could California. California could probably better secede than the South, because California had all that gold. And it was in response to that that the federal government said, you know what, if we build a railroad to California, that will tie California to the rest of the United States. Because all those people who took four months traveling by foot to get to California, they can get back to the eastern part of the United States in four days on a train. And so it took that federal underwriting. Later in the century, the big irrigation projects of the West would be developed with federal money. And so, and I should add, through all of this, the federal army, the U.S. Army, was fighting Indians, claiming land, seizing land from the Indians to dispose of to the people of the people who moved out to the West. In the case of the California Gold Rush, this was federal land that gold was discovered on. And so if it hadn't been acquired by the federal government, there wouldn't have been any gold. There wouldn't have been any gold rush. So the part of the appeal of the West is, yeah, I can go out there and I can be myself and I can, you know, I can survive or fail in my own efforts. And that's true enough. Uh, one of the characters I developed in the book is a guy named Joseph Meek, Joe Meek, who was a Mount Manifer tra- trapper. And I follow him on his exploits through the Rocky Mountains. And for most of the time, he really is on his own. If he falls in an icy river, then he could drown in or freeze, and nobody's going to come save him. But, but even there, this is territory that was acquired by the United States. And, and one of the other themes that I develop here is that even, even in the remotest regions of the West, in the, the heights of the Rocky Mountains, where Joe Meek is trapping beaver, he is not only sort of dependent on the actions of the federal government of the United States, but he is intrinsically tied into a globe of the, excuse me, the, an economic globalized network, because he is trapping beaver that are going to be made into the beaver wool for hats that are worn by fashionable gentlemen in London. And in fact, the end of the fur trade, Jomi has to find a new job when, uh, partly it was because beaver were getting harder to find, but the main reason the fur trade dried up was that those fashionable gents in London decided they liked silk hats instead of beaver hats. 
And so it's a change in taste in London can have an effect. It can destroy an industry in the middle of the Rocky Mountains of the American West. So in an odd way, the West was globalized to a greater extent, commensurately, than the rest of the country. The California Gold Rush, I sometimes describe the California Gold Rush as the first event in modern world history, which seems like a, a grandiose claim. But what I mean is, it's about the very first event where the influences are felt all over the world almost at once. As soon as the news gets to Australia, to China, to Hawaii, to Chile, to Peru, to France, to Belgium, to the east coast of the United States, people hear that there's gold in California, and all of a sudden they race for California. The result of this was that California was the most cosmopolitan state of the Union in the early 1850s, because of all these people that had come from all over the world seeking the gold. We just have a couple of minutes left. <clears throat> I want to... Um... I want to skip, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the hour, but that moment when when the West was filled up, that moment when this empty space was gone, essentially, and and that had a great effect, I think, on the psyche of at least some Americans, right? I wonder if you talk a little bit more about that uh, here at the end. It, sure, it did. So there was kind of an identity crisis for Americans in the 1890s. It was in the 1890 census, the beginning of the decade, the director of the census said there's no longer a frontier. A couple of years later, a historian at the University of Wisconsin named Frederick Jackson Turner developed this theory of the essential role of the frontier in the development of American democracy and American culture. This was also the age when the great powers of Europe were claiming colonies, were expanding their empires in Africa and Asia. And many Americans took from this closing of the American frontier, an idea that the United States ought to find a new frontier somewhere else. It was at the end of this decade, the United States seized the colony of the Philippines and Puerto Rico and the Caribbean and embarked on a brief career of formal imperialism. And a lot of it was very out of character with what most Americans thought their country had stood for. But when you're having one of these identity crises, People do sometimes do things that are out of character. And it was as a result of this sense that this country was no longer what it had been because there was no longer a West in the way that there would always been until now, a place where we can go and remake ourselves if things get bad enough in the East. So bring it forward to today. What, where, where do you think the, uh, the, the myth of the American West is, is today? Uh, it's, it's still affecting it's us, I'm sure. It, it's not what it was. So... When I was younger, in the 1950s and 1960s, you would see uh, TV westerns. You'd see cowboys. And the myth of the cowboy was almost as strong as it had ever been. And the Marlboro Man was, you could see him riding across the billboards and TV commercials of America. Well, we're kind of past that time. Um, so there is a sense that the, the West is different. But but California has almost become attached to the American East. So you People talk about this bi-coastal culture, this bi-coastal civilization that we have, and then there's flyover country in between. And when they, they refer to the flyover country in between, they're not talking about Alabama and Mississippi, and they're not talking about Pennsylvania and Indiana. They're talking about Kansas and Nevada and Wyoming. So there are parts of the West where if you go out there today, and if you just turn your back on the interstate that you happen to be driving on 
it looks a lot like it did back then. And so there is this sense that the West is still there. There are still people who, when they make their fortune, it could be in Silicon Valley today, or it could be in Northern Virginia, they want to buy a ranch in the West. They want to somehow get back to their roots. And the West is this place where Americans still try to get back to their roots. Well, we're uh, out of time. Uh, interesting and uh, much more to read uh, in, in the book. Uh, Dreams of El Dorado, A History of the American West is the book. The author is H.W. Brands, and he'll be in Salt Lake City on Friday at the King's English Bookshop, 7 o'clock. That event is free and open to the uh, public. You can uh, find H.W. Brands on uh, Twitter, at H.W. Brands, and H.W. Uh, Brands uh, teaches at the University of Texas at Austin. H.W. Brent's been a, a pleasure, as always. Thank you. It was good to talk to you again, Tom. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.